ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday, the 12th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. One in three Australian students can't read properly, and that's costing the Australian economy about $40 billion, according to a new report by the think tank the Grattan Institute. The students who fall behind generally don't catch up, and the Institute's describing that as a preventable tragedy. The report says teaching methods are to blame, that the evidence is clear on what works and that it's time for a reading revolution in classrooms. National Education and Parenting reporter Connor Duffy filed this report. I'm going to ask that again. Some people are asleep. What two letters are making out all as in saw sound? Good job. At Churchill Primary School, two hours outside of Melbourne in the Latrobe Valley, Hayley McColl is teaching her Year 2 class one of the most important lessons they'll get, how to read. All as in saw at the end of the word. Good job. They'll learn, you know, simple one-syllable words with that sound today and then the next day they'll be reading it in sentences. The next day they'll be learning reading it in bigger um, multi-syllable words as well. It's a teaching style called structured literacy that's anchored in phonics and involves breaking all of the key components of reading into lessons that are taught explicitly to students. Churchill Primary has had remarkable success since it adopted this method. In 2016, almost half of Year 3 students and 65% of Year 5 students did not meet national minimum standards in reading. Principal Jackie Burrows says within three years, every single student met or exceeded the standard. For us, the most exciting thing about this new approach is the results that we've got for the kids. So the kids are performing much higher academically, but also their engagement, their attitude towards school. Um, Teachers are enjoying teaching a lot more because the kids have been successful. The new approach replaced a teaching style called whole language, popular on university campuses. Its philosophy is that reading is natural and it aims to teach partly by empowering empowering students through exposing them to good literature and having them discover reading on their own. Principal Jackie Burrows says this approach was leaving students guessing words, which was frustrating for them and their teachers. They're not left to discover things for themselves or flounder. They're actually taught explicitly everything that they need to know before they're asked to apply it to anything. And today, a major report released by the Grattan Institute features Churchill Primary and calls for all of Australia's 10,000 schools to go on a similar journey. The lead author is Dr Jordana Hunter, who says the science is settled and structured literacy is the superior model. We need to stop accepting failure. It's not good enough that one in three students are not where they need to be in reading. This is a national tragedy. Uh, And as I said, it's a preventable tragedy. The Grattan Institute says this has a profound personal cost, with students unable to read more likely to drop out of school, be unemployed or even go to jail. It predicts it will also have a society-wide cost of $40 billion over these students' lifetimes. But not everyone agrees. The Australian Literary Educators Association says whole language can be useful for some students and that it's opposed to one-size-fits-all teaching methods. Connor Duffy there. And in a statement to AM, the Education Minister, Jason Clare, says the reading wars are over and measures to improve reading will be considered as part of the next school funding agreement. The Greens are threatening to hold up Federal Labor's signature help to buy housing policy, saying they'll pass it only if the Federal Government makes changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. The Coalition won't support the legislation, so the Government's relying on the Greens to get that policy through Parliament. 
The previous policy had been one that Labor had taken to two election defeats. With more, here's Tom Lowry. It's only February, but it's already been a pretty big year for tax reform. The Greens want more. If the government can shift on stage three, then they sure as hell can shift on capital gains, tax concessions and negative gearing. That's the party's housing spokesperson, Max Chandler-Mather. And they've got a little bit of leverage. The Albanese government is trying to steer its help-to-buy housing scheme through the parliament. The coalition are opposed, so the government will need the Greens and other crossbenchers to get behind it. Max Chandler-Mather says right now they're far from convinced. We're always open to negotiations, but we certainly aren't just going to roll over and support a scheme that on its own is actually just going to make the housing crisis worse. The Help to Buy scheme aims to help 10,000 people who don't own a home get into the property market each year by taking a stake in a property with them. The government would take a 30 or 40% share of a property with a home buyer to significantly reduce the size of their mortgage. Similar shared equity schemes are running in states like New South Wales, Victoria and WA. The Greens argue it'll just push prices up. But changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax could convince them. Here's Max Chandler-Mather again. If you got rid of negative gearing tomorrow, there would be renters going to auctions who for the first time would have a chance against property investors who usually use those tax concessions. Uh, to out-compete first-home buyers and bid up the price of housing and screw over a lot of people who are just trying to get their first home. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has repeatedly insisted neither change is on the table. Here he is speaking to Sky News yesterday. That's not something that we're proposing, not something that we are considering, uh, not something that we are working up. Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor says given the government's form on the Stage 3 tax cuts, those assurances can't be given much weight. We know they're considering this. Their answers in the Parliament on this were very wishy-washy. They were all over the place. Labor took changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax to two election defeats before dropping the policy. Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute says it's time it was revisited. The biggest reason for reforming negative gearing along with the capital gains tax discount, is really the budget benefit. You could save $7 billion a year by reforming both of those, halving the capital gains tax discount to 25% and curbing negative gearing. And he says if it is changed, the scheme should not be grandfathered to protect existing investors. Grandfathering has the effect of entrenching the benefits for often older, typically wealthier Australians. Economist Brandon Coates ending that report by Tom Lowry. With the highest rate of homelessness in New South Wales, the Northern Rivers housing shortage has reached a crisis point. But attempts to build new homes at Brunswick Heads are getting pushback with warnings fragile bushland is being sacrificed for development. With limited land to build on and more people pouring into the region, the struggle to fix the region's housing crisis is getting harder. Stephanie Smale reports. Ecologist David Millage has been visiting this patch of coastal bush at Brunswick Heads for decades, watching birds like the glossy black cockatoo. If you have a look under the canopy here, you can see these little chewed cones. It's called Wallam Heathland, and David Millage says although there's not much left of it, it attracts a long list of threatened species. The koala, grass owl, long-nosed potteroo, grey-headed flying fox... James Barry has been coordinating the Save Wallam community campaign. Yeah, housing's great, but not here, not on threatened species habitat and not in a place where there's sacred cultural land. 
It's one of many areas in Australia facing a difficult balancing act. Clarence Property owns 18 hectares of the Wallum bushland and already has the go-ahead from the New South Wales government to subdivide part of it. There's already homes nearby and the developer argues it's not untouched bushland. But Githable and Widgeable man Yido Miles and Widgeable woman Karen Roberts argue there wasn't enough consultation to check it's the right move to keep building into the bush. It's our own and we're sick of destroying it to build another home somewhere else. You're walking in on my mother and you're ripping her. Clarence Properties Managing Director Peter Fay is defending the environmental and cultural assessments of the site. We've gone through the process within the architecture of the rules that are set out by the state government and the council. We've been on three years working on this, so it's not anything new, and we've assessed all those things. With the worst homelessness rates in New South Wales, the Byron Shire Mayor Michael Lyon says the council's working hard on solutions, including short-stay accommodation limits and getting unused farmland released for development. Oh, it's diabolical, and uh, even since we declared a housing emergency in March 21, we've seen huge changes which has exacerbated the crisis, so it's absolutely essential. As David Millage looks around at the Wallam site, he's worried more bush will disappear as the region grows. Planning really hasn't been readjusted to address the biodiversity crisis, the extinction crisis that we're in now. The Federal Environment Department says it's engaging with Clarence Property and has notified the company of its obligations under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. Stephanie Smale reporting there. In the future, anyone delivering services under the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, will have to be registered with the federal government. And today, the government's announcing it's setting up a task force to design that registration system. That was one of the recommendations to come out of last year's review of the NDIS. Bill Shorten is the minister responsible. Bill Shorten, this is a big change. The review recommended it. Why does the government want everyone registered? Well, first of all, the NDIS is here to stay under Labor. We want to make sure every dollar gets through to the people for whom the scheme was designed. One of the challenges in the scheme is to make sure that we're getting quality outcomes for participants. As of um, the end of last financial year, there were about 16,000 plus registered service providers, but about 154,000 unregistered providers. That included businesses and workers. We want to make sure that the current system for registration is actually fit for purpose, which I don't believe it is at the moment. So I've got some of the best and brightest people together to talk with the disability sector and the broader community about how we make sure that we have a risk proportionate registration system, which creates accountability, but also quality. Risk proportionate, what does it actually mean? Well, what it means is that I get that the current registration system for uh, plenty of service providers seems to be too much red tape. I also understand that when you get an NDI service, some of them are very complicated and require a high level of quality and uh, clinical governance, but others far less so. So what we want to do is make sure that we've got a system where we know what's going on, where we've got a clear line of sight on all people delivering services, but that if you're cutting someone's grass or providing very simple taxi services, that's not the same as someone who might be engaging in uh, behavioural support management for someone with high physical uh, or other needs. 
The scheme is costing billions more than forecast. Will this approach mm. help rein that in as well as crack down on those who simply focused on rorting the system? Underpinning my and the government's approach to the NDIS is we want to make sure that the scheme operates in the best interests of participants. The job of the scheme is not to create millionaires out of some service providers. So I think that when you put the best interest of the participant first, you also then start to get a scheme which is uh, more reasonable in cost because it's actually focusing on the outcome for the participant, not the financial bottom line of certain service providers. To some other political issues of the day, the Greens want changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions in exchange for support on another housing policy. You once argued for those changes as well, but Labor ditched the policy after two election failures. Are these policies now the sacred cow of Australian politics? The major parties are loath to tinker with them because they fear the electoral backlash from landlords rather than aspirational voters? Well, you're right. We did take policies to the 2016 and 2019 election. Uh, And it's clear since then that Labor has decided to try other methods and mechanisms to support people being able to access housing. To the absolute best of my knowledge, it's not something that the current government's been working on or focused on or thinking about. I think even a most reasonable critic of Labor would agree that we've got a full book of our changes to the income tax scales to give all Australians a bigger tax cut. We've got the reforms to the uh, petroleum rent reserve tax, super concessions, multinational tax reform, tax compliance, and of course our changes with tobacco. I think the sweet spot for housing reform is increasing supply, and that's what Labor's working on. And if I could, Barnaby Joyce, if a Labor MP had been filmed on their back in a public street, would they still have a job as a minister this morning? Well, it wasn't. I won't deal with hypotheticals. I've just seen the the footage very briefly. Uh, I think Mr Joyce needs support. He doesn't need, um, he certainly doesn't need a Labor politician piling in in a partisan manner. I don't know what's happened there. I'm not about to join in on any sort of lynch mob about what's happened and what hasn't. I think he needs support. That's what he's seeking. Mr Shorten, thanks for joining AM this morning. Thank you, Zabra. And Bill Shorten is the Federal Minister for the NDIS. And Barnaby Joyce has spoken with Channel 7 about that incident. I'm on a prescription uh, drug and they say certain things may happen to you if you drink. And they were absolutely 100% right. They did. European leaders say Donald Trump has undermined the security of Western soldiers with his comments that encourage Russia to attack some NATO countries. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, was founded following World War II. The US is a member and 29 European nations. The former president made the remarks during a weekend political rally, saying they applied to any NATO member who failed to meet the alliance's target of 2% spending of their GDP. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins is in London. Well, Sabra, these comments came in the middle of a lengthy speech at a campaign event in South Carolina on Saturday. So it was a wide ranging speech. And in the middle of it, he started recounting a story of a meeting he claimed he had with NATO leaders. NATO is, of course, the Western Military Alliance, of which the US and many European countries are a member of. So he was recounting meeting with these leaders and being asked, If Russia invades, will the US offer us protection? And Donald Trump claims that he told them 
that he would not offer protection to a number of the NATO member states who were not paying their fair share. And he went as far as saying that he would encourage Moscow to do what he wants with those non-paying states. What he's referring to there, NATO countries have agreed in principle to spend about 2% of their GDP on military expenditure. But a number of those countries, over the years, it's dipped a little below 2%. So they are comments that would make a number of NATO countries quite cautious and quite worried. Uh, Of course, this was a campaign event, so the language is colourful, it's loose, it's difficult to fact-check. Let's take a listen. If we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Isabella, what's the reaction been in Europe? Sabra, as you can imagine, it puts a lot of European countries on edge. This is a region that's watching the Russia-Ukraine war play out. It's approaching its third year. Security is a it's definitely at the forefront of many minds here in Europe. So we've heard from the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, who says comments like this undermine security in the entire region. They put both European and American soldiers at risk. We've heard from the foreign ministers of Germany, Poland. We've also heard from the EU Council President Charles Michel saying that comments like this are reckless. Isabella Higgins reporting there. Protests have broken out across Pakistan after three days of vote counting and still no new government. South Asia correspondent Meghna Bali reports. Hundreds gathered outside Pakistan's Election Commission office in Karachi frustrated at what they say was a rigged election. This is local lawyer Abid Hussain. How did the tables turn in favour of Nawaz Sharif's party, although the people had voted for Imran Khan? Independent candidates backed by Imran Khan and his PTI party won more seats than any other group. But with their leader behind bars, candidates like Raja Azhar fear the party may not be allowed to form government. We will fight for our right, God willing. Others are angry too, including Islamist party TLP, who joined the protests. Thursday's elections were marred by violence, an internet shutdown and allegations of vote tampering. But the Commonwealth Election Observers Group wasn't ready to declare the vote unfair. Despite his party trailing way behind in the vote, Mr Sharif declared victory on Friday. Muslim League Noon is the largest single party in the country today. And started talks with smaller parties to form a coalition. An AI-generated version of Imran Khan also made a winner's speech. My fellow Pakistanis, I congratulate you on winning the 2024 elections. The result was a surprise, as many had expected Mr Sharif, widely seen as having the powerful military's backing, to win. He still has his supporters. We have great expectations from him. We are hopeful Pakistan will be back on the road towards progress. But years of political and economic instability has bred discontentment among others. It makes no difference to me who wins or loses. My interest is in my country. The PMLN people have been tried several times before and have brought nothing but misery and losses to the country. To govern, a candidate has to show they're at the head of a coalition with a simple majority of 169 seats in the National Assembly.
Meghna Bali reporting there, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. What happens when Vladimir Putin is interviewed by a conservative American media commentator at the height of a war and it lasts for more than two hours? Well, the answer is Putin wins. So what was the real reason behind Tucker Carlson's interview with the Russian leader? And how does it play into Donald Trump's push for the White House? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.